Okay, Numbers chapter 20 tonight. Numbers 20. Sorry, in fact, Numbers 21. We looked at Numbers chapter 20 last week. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at the serpent of brass. And the serpent of brass is an interesting <clears throat> uh, encounter. Now remember, the nation of Israel are in the wilderness. Uh, they are 38, 39 years into it. They are about to go into the promised land. And... <clears throat> Last week we found them frustrated and bothered because they hadn't got water. By the way, nobody died of thirst in the wilderness. Nobody died of thirst. Animals didn't die of thirst in the wilderness. Nobody died of hunger in the wilderness. It just didn't happen. In fact, we'll look in a few minutes and we'll see that in some ways they really had it good in the wilderness. They probably had it better than they ever had it before uh, or they were ever going to have it again. But there were some problems with what God was doing. Uh, but wasn't my accident. God was actually doing some things in their lives and bringing them to a, uh, to a certain place. But <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> the story of the serpent of brass is interesting because uh, there's, there's, there's almost three messages in there. We're going to try and cover them all tonight. We're not going to be here till late, but we're going to try and cover all three messages tonight. One message is the, the serpent of brass himself, itself. That, that's a strange story. But then Jesus takes the serpent of brass and effectively in John chapter 3 he says, I am the serpent of brass. I, that was just a picture of me. And then the other story is the discontent of this people. This people that were not satisfied and couldn't be satisfied. Now, <clears throat> always we need to be reminded of this, right? We're like them. We're not better than them. We're like them. You know, we have to keep that in mind because if we, if we get above ourselves in pride, we very easily come to the place where we think we're better than these, uh, these people. And we're not. Uh, we miss it just like they did. Uh, we miss it in our own lives. I, you know, these people are complaining because they had manna. How often do we complain? And how much more than manna do we have? How much more than anything like manna do we have? And yet we find reason to complain, don't we? Uh, that's a word of prayer, and then we'll begin to look at our text. Father, would you bless us tonight, Lord? Oh, we love you, and we thank you for your work in our hearts and lives, and we thank you for the blessings you've poured out upon us. Lord, help us to be mindful of you and all that you are and want to do in our lives. Now, bless, we pray, in these few minutes. Give us ears to hear what you have for us. And uh, Lord, help us to uh, open the scripture in a way that's going to be helpful. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the Serpent of Brass, verse 5 uh, of <clears throat> Numbers chapter 21. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loathed this light bread. Now, by the way, there does not seem to be an immediate water crisis right here now. I think they're just talking historically here, because the, if there was a water crisis, we'd hear the account of how it was fixed. There's not a water crisis at this point. They're just fed up, right? They're fed up. Now, <clears throat> um, if you were wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, you have to admit you'd probably be pretty fed up, wouldn't you? Uh, you'd get weary of being wandering around in the wilderness. If you were wandering around in the wilderness eating manna, you would definitely be fed up. Now, the manna was like, uh, it, it just was like coriander seed. It was like a light bread that tasted like fresh oil. Right? Now, I'd love to taste it once. I'd probably be done with it after that. I probably would have no more interest uh, in, 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 in manna. I would just love to taste it once and find out what it tasted like. These people have been eating it for breakfast, for lunch, and for dinner all their lives. It's it. It's all they have to eat. 
I mean, they did complain early on at one stage, and God sent them so much, so much quail and so much meat that it came out their nostrils. They were sent. Then he killed them uh, for, for their discontent. But here they are. They're going through the wilderness, and they've got, <clears throat> they've got this manna. That's all they have. Now, I say that's all they have, but on the other hand, they have manna. Every physical need they had from food was met in manna. It, it just did the business. It just worked for them. They had everything they wanted. Look at me at Deuteronomy chapter 8. Just back a few pages here. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Sorry, forward a few pages. What am I thinking? Sending in the wrong direction. Sorry about that. Deuteronomy chapter 8. A reminder of God's care here, the second law. All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. Right now, they're just about to go into the land. We're kind of in the same time period as we're reading about uh, in Numbers chapter 20. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee, and to prove thee, and to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. The 40 years in the wilderness wasn't wasted time. It was very purposeful on God's part. God wanted to humble this people and to prove them, to test them, and to know what was in their hearts, and to know whether they would keep his commandments or not. You see, if God had led them straight out of the land of Egypt, a week's walk, into the land of Canaan, and had given it to them then, they would have blown it completely. They were not ready. The 40 years in the wilderness was an essential training time for this nation, and God was working in them, and he wanted to know basically what was in their hearts, and he wanted them to come to the place where they could keep his commandments. Now, the generation that went into the land of, uh, of Canaan and took it were possibly the best generation Israel ever saw. I think they were, in fact, the best generation. That, uh, they had been through all this testing period, and it had worked. These people that we're talking about right now, they rise up, and they go into the land, and they take the land, and for, uh, for, for their lifetime, at least, they obey. <clears throat> but God was working something out in them. He couldn't give it to them. But look at verse 3. And he humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord uh, doth man live. Then he says in verse 4, Thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Now, ladies, <clears throat> let's, let's talk about the raiment waxing not old upon you, right? Now, can you imagine coming to church tonight in the same dress you've been wearing for the last 40 years. Uh, now, it's, it's, it's in perfect condition. There's no holes in it. It's not threadbare or anything else. You know, listen, it's just, it's just it, this is an amazing dress. This has lasted you 40 years. And you haven't had to buy a new dress. The husbands would like that part of it. Uh, but, but, you know, you've got 40 years out of your clothing and your shoes. Listen, you didn't need a new pair of shoes for 40 years. That would be really sad and depressing for some of you, wouldn't it? Uh, it would probably be sad and depressing for all of you, more so for some. Right? <clears throat> now, Picture the same thing with the manna. 
The manna was wonderful food. It met your needs nutritionally. If somebody could, 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 could you know, work out what was in manna at this point and actually reproduce it, I mean, you would have the perfect diet. It was perfect. It met all their needs nutritionally. But it was boring. It was monotonous. It was the same day in, day out. No change. And because it was boring and it was monotonous, they got fed up with it. Now, don't we get fed up when life gets boring and monotonous? Don't we get fed up and do daft things when life gets monotonous? Isn't it true that what God is doing with Israel here, he does in our lives too? He gives us periods where everything is okay, but it's not exciting. Nothing great or wonderful is happening. It's just okay. And we want excitement. We want fun. We want different. We want change. We want the next thing. Those moments in your life are moments that are not unimportant like you feel. Let's just get past this moment. You see, what we're seeing there about Israel is that God was checking their hearts. God was wondering whether they would keep his commandments. He was testing them. He was proving them. He was humbling them. And what did he want them to do? He wanted them to realize life's not about the food I eat. Life's not about the clothes I wear. Life's about the God I serve. Life's about the God I live for. He wanted them to come to the place where they understood that, <clears throat> that life was about God. Life was about what he was saying to them, what he was doing in their lives. And in those times that seem dry to you, that's what God's looking for. He's looking for you to understand, it's about me. Now, you know, we talk a lot about being satisfied in Christ. We sing about being satisfied in Christ. We, we, sing, it, you know, we, we sing it like it's real, don't we? But the real question is, are you satisfied in him? You say, well, I could be satisfied if I had this and this and this. No, that's not the issue. The issue is, are you satisfied right now? Is he enough? Is he really enough in your life right now? He is. But the problem is, we let our hearts get to the hankering after other things and we get dissatisfied and we get bent out of shape and we do what the nation of Israel did here. Right? Here they are. He's given them everything they need. He's leading them to the promised land. They have his presence. They can look out and they can see the pillar of cloud by day and they can see the fire by night. They can see all, They have all of it. Uh, but the food, man, the food, the food is just so boring. It's manna. They're constantly going, we're like that. We do that one. We complain. It's not enough. Give us more. Right? And it's not that God doesn't want to give you more. God's going to give them more. They're weeks, months away from a place where they're going to have everything they could possibly want. They're going to have grapes that they never sowed, uh, planted. They're going to have uh, figs. They're going to have olives. They're going to have everything in a few weeks' time uh, that they never labored for, never, never sowed. God can give you that. God can do anything. There's nothing that, uh, that, 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 that stops God from doing what he wants to do. But sometimes he puts you in a place and he says, Now, I want to see if you can really be satisfied with me. I want to see if I'm enough for you. I want to see if in these moments, when it seems boring to you, when it seems like there's no fun in the whole thing, I want to see if you can look into my face and say, yes, you are enough, Lord. 
And when you say yes, you are enough, Lord, you get one of the greatest victories of your life, probably. And you may travel on to the next phase, and everything changes, and you may say, well, that, that, that wasn't a big deal. But with God, it's a big deal. It's a big deal that we're satisfied in Him. It's a big deal that we look into Him and, and are satisfied. Isn't it interesting? <clears throat> you know, we talk about reaching lost people with the gospel. We want them to get saved, and we want them to, <clears throat> to understand Jesus Christ as their Savior. But lost people tend to look at us and look at our lives and say, well, okay, does their life work? That's reasonable. That's very reasonable. You know, uh, if in your life, you know, you're, 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 you're saved, and you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, and you're going to heaven, but you're miserable. You got your, I just sucked a lemon face on all the time. You know, people look at you and they say, well, why would I want, why would I want to live my life like that? You're not satisfied with what God has given you, and you're constantly complaining about how little you have and how hard life is and all the rest. Why would anybody want that? But if he can really satisfy like you claim he can, and you are really satisfied, that speaks volumes. That's real. You see, these people, God wanted them to come to the place where they were satisfied in him. And they weren't. They were bored. Okay, now back to our text in, in Numbers chapter 21. For our soul loathed this, this life bread, and the Lord sent fiery serpents among them, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Now, by the way, what you see of God in the Old Testament is who he is. We're not looking at the God of the Old Testament, you know, who got reformed when it came to the New Testament and changed his ways and decided to kind of, you know, <clears throat> update himself somewhat so that people would like him more. No, this is God. Okay, so uh, they spoke against God and against Moses, complained about the bread, uh, complained about the fact that there wasn't water after he'd given them water out of the rock. Uh, and so God was upset. And what did he do? He sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of Israel died. Now, why is he doing this? Why would God do this to these people? Why would God allow them to be bitten so that they die just because they're complaining and they're moaning? Well, remember, the nation of Israel is, I don't want to say an experiment, but it's a, but it's a project God is working on to take this nation and to bring them into the land of Canaan to grow a savior for mankind from. I mean, that's what's in God's mind. That's what he's doing. And he needs this people to come on board. He needs this people to come right. So when they do wrong, there are times when he judges very severely. A couple of weeks ago, we, we looked at the occasion uh, with Korah when God caused the ground to open up and Korah and all his family and all the people that were involved in it were, went down uh, into the ground. The, the, the earth opened up and they were swallowed right there and then. God did it to prove what Moses was saying. And thousands of people died on that occasion. And now, <clears throat> here we have another occasion where the people have sinned, they've done wrong, God has taken care of them. God has looked after them. He has met their needs over and over and over again. And he's perfectly righteous and, and just in what he does. So he decides, <clears throat> so he sends in fiery serpents to the people and they bit the people. By the way, don't you love the way the Bible doesn't say, uh, <clears throat> and fiery serpents happen to come amongst the people. Or they walked into a batch of fiery serpents. See what it says? It says, and the Lord sent fiery servants in. Do you know our God is not shy about taking responsibility for what he does? He's not shy about it at all. He's, he's not afraid of looking bad. He's not afraid of it. What he does is when he does something, he says, okay, I did it, yeah. 
And you need to understand that, that nothing happens in his world without him being involved in it. And he sent the fiery serpents in, and much of the people died. Therefore the people came to Moses. Now, notice the response, the reaction, what happens. The fiery serpents go in, people are dying left and right and center, and it's, it's, it's mayhem in the camp now. Uh, people are crying out in pain, and they're dying. And the people rush to Moses. We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord. Do you know what? Moses didn't have to preach 15 sermons on not speaking against the Lord. They knew before they ever started it was wrong. And they knew instantly what the fiery servants were about. Now, they were getting to know God. They were getting to understand God. And they instantly come in and they say, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord, and against thee pray unto the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Now, and here's what I, I, I would envision. You know, they come, they repent, they get things right with God. I would envision all the serpents just turn around and they slithered out of the camp just the same way as they slithered into the camp. That's, that's what I would envision. That's what I would picture. But God does something else. By the way, you know, God's always doing something new. We do need to understand that about God. I mean, how many times in the Bible does he do things exactly the same thing? Do things the same way? He does new things. Regularly he introduces new things, and he does new things. He's always got a plan in mind. But he does something new here. He does something that, uh, that had never been seen before. And something that honestly sounds to me a little bit wild. Right? And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it shall live. A serpent? They're the ones that are causing the problem. Why would you make a serpent? Right? And Moses made a serpent of brass, and he put it up on a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent of brass... He lived. I know. I, I love a picture of this. Some things, some things you, you know, action replay would be really good. Uh, you know, to be able to actually see how this all came about and how this... I love a picture of this. Right, first of all, Moses had to go and he had to get the serpent made. People, mayhem in the camp. Everybody's crying out in pain. Uh, the serpents are biting people. You know, and um, uh, Moses goes and he makes a serpent of brass. And then he holds it up. And you know what happens? Exactly what God said would happen, happens. God said, when he looked upon it, um, that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Now, I'd have done it differently. I'd have gone around, had Moses go around and touch the people with the snake. That kind of would have been effective, effectual for me. Uh, you know, I would have had the people repent maybe and then I get touched by the snake uh, or they would touch the snake. But no, God, just have them look at it. All they had to do was look at it. So <clears throat> the, the brazen serpent was put on a pole and was lifted up and you looked at it. So here you are. You've been bitten by a snake. You're in agony. You're dying. The poison has taken root in your body. You are dying. You are going down uh, with this snake. And all you have to do is look at it and you're healed. That's incredible, isn't it? That, that, that's just an incredible picture to me. All you've got to do is look at this uh, brazen serpent and instantly 
You're healed. Now, 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 why was it look at it? Simply because that's what God said to do. God said, all you have to do is you've got to look at it, and as soon as you look at it, you're going to be healed. Look at the brazen serpent and the brazen, and instantly you're going to be healed. And, and it worked. Now, let's, let's imagine the camp of Israel, right? We'll say you've been bitten and you're dying. And somebody comes over to you and says to you, listen, all you've got to do is look at the brazen serpent and you're too sick. You're, and so, somebody helps you turn your head and you look at the serpent, instantly you're healed. Right? Well, say you, you, you're there and, um, uh, you know, you realize, all you've got to do is look at the serpent to be healed. Well, say you're bent out of shape with God. And you say, it's not fair, him sending in these, these, these fiery serpents. These fiery serpents are killing the people. It's not, you know, all you've got to do is look, and you get healed. Right? Now, you're not supposed to look through one eye and stand on your left arm. Uh, you're just supposed to look. It's way too simple, isn't it? It's kind of, it's, it's simplistic, it's so simple. But all they've got to do is they've got to look. Now, I suppose, I don't know how somebody could be this dumb. I suppose it was possible if you'd say, I'm not looking. You can't make me. I am not looking at that serpent. He's the cause of this, and I'm not doing it. So you, you can just get lost. I am not looking at that serpent. I am looking away from the serpent, because I, I suppose you could do it. And you know what's going to happen? If you did that, you're going to die. Healing was in the camp, but you're going to die. Because you won't look. I suppose if you were like that, somebody would have pleaded with you. Please look at the serpent. Just give in. Look at the serpent. Look at the brazen serpent. And you could have said, no, I'm not. Because you had free will. But you know what? All you had to do was turn and look at the serpent. And you were healed. Now, I suppose for <clears throat> if you were in pain and you were dying and you saw people around you, hey, he was worse than me and now he's, he's well. It's get very hard not to look at the serpent, wouldn't it? You know, I suppose somebody might say, well, you know what, that's, that's ridiculous. That's just demeaning. I mean, if God's going to heal me, he can just heal me. He doesn't want to expect me to look at this serpent. There's all kinds of objections you could come up with, but they'd be daft. Just look at the serpent. Just look at him. That's all you've got to do. You've got to look at him and you'll be healed. Right? And you know what? That's a picture of salvation. Look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Now, now look here, because you're going to see Jesus taking this to himself. He's speaking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a good man. He's a religious man. He's uh, a Pharisee. He's way up there. I mean, if, if you and I knew Nicodemus, we'd be, we'd be struck by how holy this man is. I mean, he, he's got it down. His life's all about God. He's living the right kind of life. He's doing the right kind of things. We'd be struck. We'd be saying, you know what? This guy's got to be going to heaven. Now, he's heard Jesus speak, and, and you know, he's heard of the things Jesus is doing. And so, uh, one night he comes to Jesus. Now, he comes to night, Jesus by night because he's, he, he's afraid. Well, what are the Jews going to say? What are, what are my, you know, my colleagues going to say if they see me going to see this, you know, this um, uh, upstart rabbi who's calling himself a rabbi, but he's never been to school and he's never got any degrees and, you know, uh, I don't know who he thinks he is. Uh, what would they say if they saw me? But he was intrigued. 
And he had to come. And Jesus, you know, verse 3, burst his bubble completely. He says, Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus wrestles with it. How can I be born again? Can I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? And, and um, <clears throat> Jesus explains to him. He's talking about the Spirit. And, and um, <clears throat> you know, Nicodemus is just confused. He says, how can these things be? What are you talking about? Right? <clears throat> and in verse 10, Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master in Israel, and knowest not these things? Now, here's the truth about Nicodemus. He was a good man. But he was not spiritual. And the reason he was not spiritual is because he was a good lost man. Do you realize you can be a good lost person? That you can be good but still lost? Lots of people in our world are. Just because somebody's good doesn't mean they're going to heaven. That's the wrong economy. That economy says if I live right, do right, and, and, and get, get, get those things right in my life, then I'm going to go, go to heaven. That, that, that's the wrong economy. It's not, it's not by being good. God's going to tell us what it's, what it's about and how it works out. <clears throat> I, the Lord Jesus is going to tell us here. Uh, but Nicodemus was not going to go to heaven because he was good. Uh, something else needed to happen, and he didn't understand. Now, I think that's really sad. And I think there's a lot of religious people, there's a lot of vocational religious people in our country. Did you know what? They're good people. As far as they're concerned, they're doing the right thing. But they don't know. They don't understand. And by the way, it's our job to tell them. It's our job to let them know, right? <clears throat> Verse 11, Very barely I say unto you, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and you receive not our witness. Now Jesus has been talking. Nicodemus has been hearing, but he's not been hearing. He's not been understanding. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Right? So he's talking about himself then. Now look at verse 14. Here's what we're going to. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now Jesus puts himself in the place of the brazen serpent. He says, <clears throat> I must be lifted up. Now what's he talking about there? He's talking about the cross. When Jesus was put on the cross, he was lifted up. When Jesus was put on the cross, he was lifted up so that everyone that believed, because he's going to tell us that in the next verse, would be saved. Look at the next verse. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, Jesus was lifted up 2,000 years ago so that we could look to him and believe on him and be saved. Now let's go back to our picture of the, um, <clears throat> of, uh, of the serpent. Well, say you'd not been bitten by the serpent. Well, say you'd run out of the camp at the first sign of the serpents and you'd not been bitten by the serpent. Would you need to look on the serpent? No. Do you know the people that looked on the serpent? Everyone that had a pain from where the serpent bit them. Everyone that knew they had a need. Do you know that a lot of people don't look to the cross because they don't think they have a need? You see, the difference, the, the, where this story is different, every illustration breaks down at a certain point, but where this story is different is this, right? You see, <clears throat> the, the, those people that had been bitten by the fiery serpents, they could put their hand on their leg and they could feel the pain. They were screaming out in pain. These fiery serpents had bitten them. They knew the poison was going into their system right there. 
They could feel themselves going down sick, sick wise. But you know what? In our world, people don't feel that. You see, the burning, burning, the, 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 the fiery serpents are a picture of sin in our lives. And oftentimes, we live so much with sin, we don't recognize sin. We don't recognize that we're wrong. We don't recognize that we've done anything wrong. We don't recognize that God would be offended with us. And so we don't think we have a need to look to the cross. We don't think there's a problem. But every last person on this earth has a problem with sin. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter how good you've been. Doesn't matter if you've been raised in a Christian home. Doesn't matter if you've been in church all your life. It doesn't matter. Every last person in this world has a problem with sin. The Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You may not be feeling the pain of your sin, like some do, but it doesn't matter. You're still sinned. You've still done wrong. Everybody has a problem with sin. We all need the Savior. You see, the difference is that everybody in the camp has been bitten when Jesus talks about it. Everybody's been bitten by this thing called sin. Everybody needs to look. But we're deceived into thinking we don't need it. I'm good. I'm okay. I don't need it. <clears throat> let's, let's continue on in our passage. Um, <clears throat> verse 16, most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know tonight that God loves you? Wherever he finds you, whatever you're doing, whatever you've done, he loves you. He doesn't just reserve his love for a special few. If he did, he'd wipe out all the ones that offended against him and he'd keep a special few, and a special few would be none. Because we've all offended them. <clears throat> um, but God loves you tonight. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, he loves you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. By the way, let me, let me just say this, and it's not our point. He loves everybody in the world. Everybody. <clears throat> that's what it says in the text. And that's the, the simplest understanding of the text is God loves everybody. Right? Now, <clears throat> so he so loved us that he gave his only begotten son. Do you think that cost him? Why did he do that? Why would you sacrifice the most precious thing to you? Well, why would you let him go to a cross? I have a son. I wouldn't sacrifice him for anybody. That's, that's way, too, way too far. And God gives us a picture here. Like I feel about my son, he felt about his son only more. Because he was perfect and his son was perfect. And he sold of the world that he gave. His only begotten son. He didn't do it for the fun of it. He didn't do it because he wanted to do some, give us some grandiose picture. He did it because we had a problem. And there was no other way to fix our problem. There was no other way to fix it. The only thing that was going to fix the problem was Jesus on the cross. You want to know how bad your sin is? Look at the cross. See what it costs Jesus to pay the price for your sin. Jesus paid the price for all of it. That whosoever believeth, sorry, <clears throat> that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. 
what does it mean to perish? Does it mean to die? Well, we all die anyway, don't we? If it means that he was going to save us from dying, then you know what? He didn't save us because we all die anyway. You know, sooner or later, if the Lord doesn't come back for us, uh, before we die, we'll all end up in a coffin and we'll end up, all end up getting buried. That's just the reality of life. That's an indisputable reality, isn't it? If he was saving us from dying, then he didn't save us. So he's not talking about that. What does it mean to perish? Well, <clears throat> the idea of perishing is the idea that we are born in sin, we live in sin, we die in sin, and we go to the place where only, the only place that sinners can go, hell, separated from God for eternity. That's what he's talking. He's talking about people, when people perish, that's where they go. It's much worse than just death. You know, <clears throat> death is not something any of us, uh, <coughs> you know, want or look forward to. But he's not talking about us dying. He's talking about us perishing and going to hell. <clears throat> that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Instead of perishing, he gives you eternal life, God life. Now you say, how does he do that? Okay, it says it in the verse. Whosoever believeth in him. Whoever comes to the place where they trust in him where they depend upon Him, where they realize, I have a problem. It's called sin. If I don't get my problem fixed, I'm going to perish, go to hell. But Jesus died for my sins that I might have everlasting life, and if I believe on Him, I have it. Now back to our picture of the brazen serpent. See when the man looked, he's in agony, and he looked to the brazen serpent. Do you think it took four weeks for the pain to go away and for him to be healed? No, it happened like that. This was an amazing thing. This is an incredible miracle. What you've got is you've got a camp full of people and they're all screaming out in agony, in pain. They're dying because of the bite of the serpent. And the brazen serpent is lifted up and they look to the serpent and instantly they're healed. People are standing up. Hey, even the marks are gone. I'm fixed. I'm healed. People are amazed. They're astounded. God was showing mercy on a grand scale to all those who... Do you know what happens when you look to the Lord Jesus Christ, when you depend upon Him? You're saved. From that moment on. I remember the night I got saved. I knew I was changed. It was different. From that moment on, I had trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. He was my Savior. When I died, He was going to meet me. I was going to heaven. It was all changed. It was all different. Now, I realize sometimes some people can have, you know, they can have <clears throat> uh, insecurity about it, and they can kind of wonder about it for, for, for a time sometimes. But you know, for most people, there's an instant reality. I'm His. I'm saved. I'm not going to perish. I'm going to go to heaven. I can remember waking up the next morning and the first thought that came to my mind, I'm going to heaven. I'd always hoped I was going to heaven, but I'd never known. And now I knew. I wasn't going to perish. I had everlasting life. I was going to heaven. Now, why did I have it? 
Well, because you turned your life around, Dave, and you started living good. And I hadn't. I hadn't changed anything. I hadn't had time. I was still the same old Dave that went to bed the night before. But I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior, and he had stepped in, and he had done something, and I was different now. And I've been different ever since. Now, you know, it wasn't a kind of a conditional salvation. Okay, I'll save you if you're good. I kind of had that offer before and didn't work very well because I couldn't be good and I knew it couldn't be good. You know, and it wasn't a salvation that was going to take several weeks to do. (laughs) It was like the brazen serpent. Look and live. Just look. I realized I was a sinner. I realized I needed Christ and I cried out to him. I believed on him. I depended upon him. Whatever name you want to put in it, that's what I did. And I was saved that night. Many of you been right to that place too. You, 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 you came to that place where, where you looked to him and you were saved. Now, let me give you some counsel here. You know, when it comes to salvation, we look at people's lives and we want their lives to change. We want them to get saved and sanctified instantly on the spot. We want them to get rid of all the drinking and all the everything in their lives. That, that's a problem. And we want them to walk like new men because they're saved. And Some of them do and some of them don't. And when they don't, do you know what we want to do? We want to get them saved again. You only ever need to get saved once. You can't be saved twice. It gives you everlasting life. It's yours from that point on. You don't need to get saved twice. The problem with somebody getting saved a second time is this, you know, if it didn't work the first time, it's hard like to work for them the second time. And what they're doing is they're basing it on, okay, my life's going to change because I'm saved. No, my life doesn't change because I'm saved. My life changes because I respond in faith to what God has done. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. What happens is, after I get saved, I begin to trust him with my sin. And you know what? I walk away from it. My life begins to change. Everything begins to get different. But don't let's complicate salvation by saying, well, you have to look by squinting with one eye and standing on your head. That's not what you do. You just believe. You just trust. God does all the rest. You know, here's some poor man and he's dying um, because of this uh, serpent that's bitten him and and he, he can just barely turn his head around and he glimpses the brazen serpent and he's fixed. Instantly. He's back on his feet. He's well again. He's going, wow. He's checking the marks where he was bitten. He's going, this is amazing. That's what happens when you get saved. You get, sa- you get saved completely. All the way. Now look, there's a lot you need to understand about salvation that you don't understand yet. There's a lot you need to grow in the Lord. That's, that's, that, that's coming up for you. Lots of, but you know what? You're saved just like that. You're born again. You become his child. You know, and that's what we need to understand. It's just believing. That's all. I just believed on him. I had a problem. My leg. The serpent had bitten me. I was dying. And I I looked to the serpent, the brazen serpent, and I was was fixed. I realized I had a sin. I was dying. I was was in my sin. I was going to go to hell. And I I realized Jesus died for me, and I I believed on him, and I was saved right there and then. And if you're saved tonight, that's exactly how you were saved too. 
You might tell the story differently. You might emphasize different things in the story, but that's exactly what happened to you. You looked at a certain point. You depended upon what Jesus did, and you were saved. You were born again. You're on your way to heaven. It's, the, it's, it's a much better, greater miracle than, than being healed of a burning fire, uh, fiery serpent because you looked on a brass serpent. That's exactly what happened, though, the moment you got saved. Now, <clears throat> two thoughts here. First of all, if you didn't look at the, bur- at the brazen serpent, you didn't get healed. I'm going to say, people talk to you about the serpent, but you said, no, I'm not. I don't care. I'm too sick. I'm just going to die. I'm fed up living. Anyway, I, I just want, I'm not looking. You're going to die. There was power there to heal, but you were going to die. Do you realize a lot of people pass through this world? They live their lives. They take the years God has given them. They live them, and they never come to the place where they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They never come to the place where they say, I need that. Without that, I'm finished. I'm lost. I'm on my way to hell. They never come to that place in their lives, and because they never do, they go out of this life. The power was there to save them, but they're not saved. Jesus made a sacrifice enough to cover their sins too, but it never availed for them. Because what they did is they ignored what he did. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. Don't live your life and miss the purpose of life. Second thought is this. Don't make salvation complicated. You say, well, that's just easy to believe as a pastor. How hard is it to believe? I... You know what? <clears throat> there are some people today, and if they got the chance to go back to the, bra- uh, the burning fiery serpent, they would have had to have three lessons about how to look at the burning fiery serpent before somebody could look at it. They would have to make sure that they, you know, the, 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 there was the true repentance and that there was tears to go along with the true repentance so that when somebody looked at it, they were in the right place to deal with it. And people would have died. Getting saved is about believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did. What comes after that comes after that. Keep it in its right place. Understand that sanctification does not go before salvation. Sanctification comes after salvation. Don't get them mixed up. A lot of confusion out there, theologically in our day and age, uh, about <clears throat> salvation and you know wanting people to be in the right place before they can get saved. You, nobody's in the right place before they get saved. You get saved and you get in the right place. Here, the thief on the cross. Um, Remember me when thou comest into thy place. And Jesus said, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. What? What happened for him? Well, he got to look at the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way as the Israelites got to look at the the, uh, brazen serpent, didn't he? He looked over and here's, here's one on a cross. Yeah, I'm dying on a cross too, but I'm dying on a cross because I deserve to. He's dying on a cross because he he never did anything to deserve it. He's dying on a cross for me. And he didn't know nothing. He, He didn't understand. He didn't know about repentance. He didn't know he was supposed to cry. He didn't know anything. He just looked at Jesus and he said, remember me. When you come into your place. I have a need. I'm a sinner. I deserve to be here. You're different to me. You you are the Christ, the Messiah. Will you remember me? 
yeah, and Jesus doesn't say, okay, well, I'll tell you what, when, you, when you've gone through the three lessons that come to salvation, then we'll talk about it. He doesn't say when you've repented fully, all the way down to the bottom of your toes, and you've, <clears throat> you've gotten yourself sorted out. He doesn't say when you're form. He doesn't say when you promise to do everything I tell you forevermore after this. He just says, yeah, today, you'll be with me in paradise. That's what he always says. Our God is the most generous, big-hearted being you're ever going to come across. He, he saves people because he's just incredibly loving. And he saves them if they'll turn to him. Don't make salvation harder than he did. You know, Paul is in the prison <clears throat> and and the Lord brings the earthquake and they're all set free and the, and the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Paul doesn't say, well, I tell you, well, let's have our, come to our three salvation classes for three weeks and if you repent properly and if you agree to change your life forever, then we'll do the business. He says, no, no, he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's as simple as that. Don't get our theology messed up and get to a place where, where there's extra things added into it. There's no, it's belief. Look. There's a lot more that comes after that. There's a lot more to understand about salvation. There's a lot more to understand about sanctification. There's, there's a wonderful life with God you can enjoy, enjoy after you get saved. But getting saved is just believing on what the Savior did. It's as simple as that. You couldn't have a more simple picture and then he gets, look at verse 17 and then we're done, right? For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Do you know that Jesus came not to condemn the world? Jesus didn't come to make it harder. Jesus didn't come to make, <clears throat> make the world uh, smart for its sin and make the world realize how wicked it was and, and, and then refused him salvation. He came into the world to save the world. Reckless love. An incredible demonstration by a God who loves people that hate him. And he says, now, listen, just believe in what I've done, and I'll save you. It couldn't be simpler. It couldn't be simpler for you to do if you're not saved. And it couldn't be simpler for you to tell somebody about if you are saved. Don't complicate it. Don't let anyone complicate it for you. It's simple. Just believe and be saved. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we love you. And oh Lord, when we look at salvation, Lord, our hearts light up with the wonder of a God that cares for us like that and would love us and would save us. Now, blessed Spirit of the living God, Lord, you know the needs of each heart in this room. Lord, <clears throat> would you minister to each heart? Well, for those that do not know you as Savior, Lord, may tonight be the night when they just simply believe and call out to you. Oh, Lord, <clears throat> may it be real. May there be an understanding of why they need it, because they're sinners. 
But Lord, may there be that crying out to you. And Lord, for the rest of us, for those that do know you, oh, blessed Spirit of the living God, may we go and tell this great news. May we tell this great news, the Savior has died. Believe on him, and you can be saved. Lord, whether they accept it or not, it's between them and you. But Lord, give us a heart and a passion like yours to tell them about it. Lord, would you bless, would you be with us? In Jesus' name, amen.